All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for Crow Triple Seven Radio, episode one hundred and fifty-one. Jason Lingren is with me. Um, we're going to be talking a little bit about the cathedrals. From my point of view, when you look at all the things that we can still see in this world that have been built by human beings, for me, the cathedrals top the list. Uh, when you come to study them and begin to understand the vast amount of philosophical information that was encoded into those cathedrals, it becomes a real eye-opener. But what's even more is the idea that somehow just a few hundred years ago, seemingly, we were at such a high level. How did we fall to where we are now, where we just build 90-degree angles, boxes, and rectangles, the angles of sorrow from the Hermetic Principles? Um, that's how we live now, and we are not even in the same ballpark as the time when those cathedrals were built. But what we're going to do is to endeavor to show a little bit of the information that was encoded into them, and it's it's a bit mind-blowing. But anyhow, let's jump in with Jason Lingren for episode 151. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 151. Jason Lingren's with me, and we're going to be talking partially about the work of Falconelli, who went at trying to describe what is held within the cathedrals in Europe. But I would ask a simple question uh, from the outset here. How is it that sometime in the not-too-distant past, we could build these incredible buildings that encode all that was known of natural science and alchemy, and now we basically build boxes and rectangles, or we copy some supposed classical Greek column and uh, call that high architecture of our time. Uh, we've had a fall here. Clearly, we've had a fall. And it was not that long ago that those cathedrals were built. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. Good, not morning, but afternoon. Yeah, we got a late start. It's been a heck of a week, man. It's been one thing after another this week. But uh, what do we have for the introduction here? The most interesting thing we've done this week is, of course, the Indonesian school last night. Right. So those who have followed might remember that there was a high school in Indonesia who used Crow 777 podcasts. Um, each student chose a different one, and they did reports based on those podcasts. Uh, they asked me to come speak, which Jason and I did last night and recorded the whole thing. And it was really quite, it gives me hope to see young people that are maybe 17, 18 years old, seniors in high school, um, doing some pretty high-minded thinking and challenging and using the podcast that we provide here as the basis for some of it. And while we did record it, um, everyone's aware of what's been going on YouTube. And now when you go to upload, they're going to ask you if there are children in the video. So we will not be running that on YouTube, but we will be running it for membership at Crow Triple 7 Radio as maybe an extra episode. Uh, what would you add, Jason? I definitely would like to do that. And good grief, is it refreshing to see young minds, and the teacher as well, really going for it, completely pushing the mainstream crap aside and just really trying to think for themselves. My God, it was wonderful. I can't even imagine a high school in, in the United States doing what they're doing. Not only that, we will be providing them with the recording. The recording will be shared with the principal. They will decide what they will do with the recording. Um, and it's incredible. I mean, we're challenging NASA. We're challenging all these things in the wide open. I don't think that would fly in a high school anywhere near where I live. Um, anyhow, anything else, Jason? It looks like we have settled on the city of New Orleans to do the film opening, and I am looking for an establishment as we speak. 
All right, so let's just put it out there. There it is. We've decided that New Orleans is going to be the premier city for Shoot the Moon. Um, we're going to be looking for venues or theaters or whatever works out to do it there. And just so people understand, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Jason, it's quite likely, well, I guess what we've discovered is people don't really go for DVDs anymore, but we will be likely creating Blu-rays of the film. And at some point there will be digital downloads, but the digital downloads will not come before we've been around in as many places as we can running the movie for obvious reasons. Um, did I drop anything or miss anything up there? We can do short-run DVDs. That's not a problem if enough people are asking for them. The problem is with DVDs, just in case anyone is not aware, they're only 480p. They are old-school SD television quality only. So you're definitely not benefiting from the modern technology to get a DVD. But if enough people ask for them, sure, we could do a short run. That's not a problem. It's just not going to look the way, obviously, we intended. But uh, Blu-ray does do a full 1080p, which is what I shot the film at, and all of the footage and all that is rendering out nicely. Also, at that resolution, of course, modern televisions are minimally 1080p these days, except for really super cheap ones, which are only 720p. But you get all the way up to the UHD, almost 4K kind of thing with most televisions these days, and they're just not even very expensive anymore. And I even ask, what's up with that? The 43-inch television I bought to double-check my color grading work was somewhere around $300. That's just unheard of. That's a big TV for $300. I wonder why they're making it so easy for us to acquire these things these days. You got to make sure there's six televisions in every household, but let's just suffice it to say that it will be likely that we will do pre-orders to determine Blu-ray, DVD, this kind of thing. Also, I guess we should mention, um, you've got a whole massive screen projector system, so you can tour with the film. As a matter of fact, you sent me some images from LSU where you went and set it up in an auditorium, uh, and the film looks fantastic on that big screen. It looked really cool. It was uh, kind of like that moment like, oh my goodness, I've actually done this. Like, this is real. There it is. Uh, yeah, that's the idea is that we can do home showings wherever. It's a 12-foot screen and a 1080p projector. So basically our own little movie theater is what it really is like. That makes it easier than having to rent out a theater, especially if we don't have enough people to really fill a theater and justify the cost. If someone wants to do it in a home or a backyard, if it's a nice night, that kind of thing, well, we can we can do maybe 50 people or something like that. So that option is available, and Rose and I are looking at the options of where to go now to tour this thing for the next few months. And of course, very importantly, to uh, get it into film festivals, and we've got a list of those as well. We've been doing a lot of communication on the uh, social media pages, so don't think you folks are getting overlooked. We are absolutely taking all that into consideration. Yeah, so there's a lot of interest on Facebook, which I have little or nothing to do with because I hate Facebook like a mortal enemy. Um, but you and Rose do run that. Uh, so I, I guess I guess that's enough of that, Jason. Let's Let's go ahead and jump into the episode here. I don't think we've left anything out. I think we're good. We are going to discuss the alchemist Falconelli and his 1926 book, Mystery of the Cathedrals, that originally came out in French, but of course was translated to English. And we are going to be looking for a lot of very interesting references, but the general gist of it all is that the great Gothic cathedrals, and there's something even to be said about that word Gothic, they're really all about 
the alchemical processes, the real alchemical processes, real alchemists doing real work. And we're also looking for anything that might give us any indication of the binary star. So the first quote from the book we're going to tear apart. There are then two stars which, improbable as it may seem, are really only one star. The star shining on the mystic virgin, who is at one and the same time our mother and the hermetic sea, announces the conception and is but the reflection of that other which precedes the miraculous advent of the sun. For though the celestial virgin is also called Stella Matutina, the morning star, though it is possible to see on her the splendor of a divine mark, though the recognition of this source of blessings brings joy to the heart of the artist, yet it is no more than a simple image reflected by the mirror of wisdom. In spite of its importance and the space given to it by the authors, this visible but intangible star bears witness to that other which crowned the divine child at his birth. The star which led the Magi to the cave at Bethlehem, as St. Chrysostom tells us, came to rest before dispersing on the Savior's head and surrounded him with luminous glory. I will stress this point, although I am sure that few will thank me for it. We are truly concerned with a nocturnal star, whose light shines without great brightness at the pole of the hermetic sky. It is therefore important, without allowing oneself to be led astray by appearances, to inquire about this terrestrial sky mentioned by Venceslas Lavinius of Moravia and dwelt on at length by Jacobus Tullius. You will have understood what this sky is from the following little commentary of mine and by which the alchemical sky will have been disclosed. For this sky is immense and clothes the fields in purple light in which one has recognized one's stars and one's sun. So much going on in all this. And um, to be fair, um, there's the idea that some of the, some of what's being referenced here is related to the star Regulus, which would be a blue star, the heart of Leo the lion, uh, the royal idea probably going on there. But I think that the allegory, the kind of, you know, hints and riddles that are wrapped up here are dealing with more than one idea. And at the end, he even closes talking about knowing the difference between one stars and one sun. So I think it also encompasses the double star idea um, that we covered last time, but clearly there's a lot going on here, Jason. Now, the one thing I have to say about this book right up front is that a lot of it is written in a way that real alchemists will know what he's actually referring to. But the uninitiated, as he, I believe, calls them, would not. So the uninitiated, of course, are most of us. And most people wouldn't even read this book in the first place. But a lot of folks are actually called to learn more about alchemy after reading this book and become initiates. But you have a lot of work to do to even really begin to unravel the way he's shrouding things with his words. Right. Now, in this day and age, it would almost be better just to use the words natural science instead of alchemy, because like the word astrology, there's so much baggage attached to the word alchemy. But uh, through and through, if you read Mystery of the Cathedrals, again and again, he'll make reference to people who are in the know and people who are not in the know, even referencing 
how people walk into the cathedrals so that they must walk towards the rising sun. Um, and we'll get into the layout of the cathedral maybe a little bit later, but um, to take, Jason and I were talking about this offline, one, one astounding thing, which I was completely unaware of, is that apparently there were 11 stairs going up to the Notre Dame Cathedral um, in France, and uh, now there are not 11 stairs, there's just the porch there. So over the course of time, um, the layers of life have built up, 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 and apparently those claimed 11 stairs are under the ground right now. We no longer see them. Very interesting. And of course, 11 is a number that will make a lot of people go, oh, okay. Right. And for my part, I went back and forth on this because I tried to find images or some other reference to the stairs, because if there were 11 stairs, it's possible that there's 12 steps. In other words, the porch being the last step. And of course, that would have to do with the path of the sun, the months of the year and all these things. But he explicitly says there were 11 steps. So it's not easy to figure out whether it's 11 steps with a 12th step to the porch or, you know, uh, uh, the movement of a human body to step that 12th time and the porch not considered a step. But anyhow. Of course, a lot of the imagery and the layout and all that with all of these cathedrals, or at least most of them, are very Freemasonic as well. And the Freemasonic notion very much intertwines with the alchemical notion all the way throughout this book. You know, one of the ideas that I think was being expressed by Falconelli here, which by the way, nobody knows who Falconelli is, but we do know who his teacher was and we do know who his student was because apparently it's the student who helped bring a lot of what he wrote down um, out into the published world. When he's speaking of the Freemasons, it almost sounds to me like he's saying these cathedrals were made before Freemasonry and all these other things were a super big deal, and they co-opted into what was encoded in the building. And these are going to be nearly impossible things to show one way or the other. But to be fair, Falconelli's closer to the point we're talking about than we are, and apparently he was an adept. The one thing I, I've picked up over the years looking at a lot of the Freemasonic information is that something happened maybe in the 17 or 1800s that really changed what Freemasonry was to what Freemasonry is. And these cathedrals would have been built most certainly with what Freemasonry was. Now, of course, none of us are really going to know exactly what that means, but there seems to have been some sort of negative element that almost certainly has creeped in and changed Freemasonry into something else from what it may have been centuries ago. For my money, and we'll put it in here, Jason, it's the age of hyper-materialism, and so we'll cover this. So according to Falconelli, he would quote the time uh, that these cathedrals were being built as the Middle Ages. That's the word he uses. And he makes a lot of valid points, but if you logically consider what's called the Enlightenment uh, or the Renaissance, uh, you're being told that all of a sudden everyone woke up one day and they were enlightened and all this amazing art and other things came but somehow we lost it all in a hurry, and now here we are back at the bottom of the ladder. This is, this is my take on the whole thing. For me, having studied this, the, the Renaissance is not being legitimately put forward in the way that I think is more accurate. I think the Renaissance and the onset of the religions of the time start to mark a time of hyper-materialism. And you can demonstrate this in a few ways. We can use the art, like that's a big part of what we're told the Renaissance is. But if you look at the Renaissance art, the vast majority of it's copying art from some other time. 
And even Falk and Mentinelli makes the point that when that art, whenever it was, was originally created, the ideas that were being put into the art is what mattered, not the guy who did it. By the time we get up to the Renaissance, it's the other way around. Now it's all skill and talent, and we're going to make rock stars out of the guys who made this art or that art, but very little of it is original. So if you consider this, that means there's a time that they're copying from when that art was original. The names were not the important thing, like Michelangelo or any other of the names we get. It was what was put into the art. And so for my money, I begin to mark the beginning of the age of hypermaterialism at what we call the Renaissance. So there's all that, Jason. So Falconelli begins with mentioning that the great cathedrals were used as meeting places for all sorts of events in medieval life. He is also referencing how traditions from ancient Rome were still being used, with very little change from their original origins, although they were slowly becoming Christianized over the centuries. But you will see things like festivals and holidays that we don't have anything to do with today that were still being celebrated at the time and in these cathedrals, which of course were... Christian. Yeah, they were, there was the coming of the Christian age, and it seems, from, from what he lays down, it seems that it was a very open-minded time, because almost every tradition and thing that they did in there was describing some kind of what we would now call a pagan tradition, uh, and it was all being openly done within the cathedrals, and that's because the cathedrals are encoding natural science, natural aspects about our world, and the path of the alchemist to become a higher human being. So as we move on in time, um, the religious institutions really take over whole, wholesale and they throw out all these old ideas, but not all of them are thrown out. Many of them are just wrapped in to the religious tradition of art that, that we now see. And of course, if you take even a cursory glance at holidays that are still celebrated today, the whole mythological concepts from ancient Rome have definitely carried over into even what we still celebrate to this day. Well, I don't know what to make of ancient Rome. Every time we say it, I'm, I'm just sitting here echoing in my head, history is a lie agreed upon. And the magical myths that we had in ancient Rome, and then all of a sudden we got a Vatican, and the doors from their Senate end up on the first basilica in Rome. It's all a bit much to accept, but clearly there was something there. But even as Falconelli looks back at what he calls ancient Rome, it seems like they are even copying things from a time that we know nothing about. Well, a lot of the ancient Roman style and substance came from ancient Greece, but then again, we have the same problem. What was ancient Greece for real? Yeah, history is a lie agreed upon. None of these things are easy, but I'm sure there must be accurate factual accounts somewhere in the world. Ironically, they're probably in the basement of the Vatican. <laughs> I have thought for a very long time, long before... We were doing this podcast that the Vatican has a lot more of the answers that we are very curious about than they will ever let on. It would be interesting to know if at some time in the future, the world's history, which is hidden down there, will come to light. Uh, I imagine people will fight tooth and nail so that that doesn't happen. Although there's an active, an active, what do you call it, uh, programming going on in the world that's defaming religion right now. You'll notice all the news is talking about this bishop who did that. Um, I just read stats that said the Church of England um, attendance is something like 1%. Um, so right now they're defaming all that. It'll be interesting to see what happens um, in the next 50, 60 years, because truly 
in the basement of the Vatican is an accurate or are elements of an accurate history that has been hidden from us, I would estimate. All I can say is, good grief, I hope they are digitizing what is capable of being digitized for the future. Lord only knows. So it is mentioned that the alchemists would gather every Saturn's Day, which of course, as our audience knows, is Saturday, to discuss their works and how to further their research. This seems to imply that the church at the time had no problem with the concepts of alchemy and what it was that they were working to discover. Obviously, they were all very open about it at the time, at least with some of their more common works. I doubt very much they were discussing every little aspect of it in the open and especially in a cathedral. Well, he, he cites all kinds of references and rituals that are going on at the time. And of course, it is Saturday, um, which is the Sabbath, the real Sabbath. Um, as we move up into modern religion, there was a time when I was younger, when uh, you went to a church in the United States and everybody thought the Sabbath was Sunday. Um, that's the day of the sun. That is not the Sabbath. Um, the Sabbath idea goes back to the Old Testament and the Judaism ideas that are in there. But once again, Falconelli shows endlessly that there are all these, what we would now call pagan, which have to do with natural sciences or the natural world events going on in these cathedrals. And the people who were operating them were perfectly okay with it. The spoken word, which gives man his indisputable superiority, his dominion over every living thing, loses its nobility, its greatness, its beauty. It becomes no more than a distressing vanity. Besides language, the instrument of the spirit has a life of its own, even though it is only a reflection of the universal idea. It sounds like Falconelli really understood the difference between what the spoken word is and what the written word is. Not only that, he's talking about a complexity um, in human thought and speech, which is now lost to us for the most part. We covered this with Giancarlo. We've covered it a few times, where if we look at a language like English, what we have now, um, what's becoming quickly the world language and the language of the Internet, uh, it's lost all gender. It's lost all subtlety and nuance. Um, if you're speaking to someone, if you don't say the word, sir, um, there's no indication that there's politeness going on. As Giancarlo pointed out, um, that's built into the old world languages. And so I think a lot of what's being looked at here is he's pointing at a higher minded time. And that's reflected even in the language to the point where there's an idea here. And I read about this once about the Tibetans when they went to India to go get their own alphabet based on Sanskrit. Um, there were cultures where anywhere a written word was written, that was considered sacred. You didn't just crumple it up and throw it away like we do now. Um, and that, that marks a real difference in our world. How many things do we throw away in a week, a day, a month that have writing all over them because it's become such a low-minded kind of common thing? I think what he's pointing at is a time here when it was a higher-minded society and all the complexity of language was built in uh, to that higher-minded time. Remember, too, my brother alchemists, that the cross bears the imprint of three nails used to sacrifice the Christ body, an image of the three purifications by sword and fire. You know, even just addressing this in modern English, Jason, uh, having discussed these things at length with Giancarlo, we, we recognize how much is lost. Even just when we say the word image, uh, English is not indicating to us all the subtleties that are, you know, attempted, uh, being attempted to be communicated here. 
Um, it's a shame, and I'll put it out there. If there are any of the listeners who speak any old world languages, to go back and read Falconelli in either French or Italian, uh, you're going to get a heck of a lot more out of it than we can in English. And this is coming from French, so I have no doubt that it was written considerably more eloquently than the clunkiness of what we are delivering here in standard English. There's no doubt. And not only that, um, we ended up using some of the Italian translations because we knew people who spoke Italian that could help us. Um, but the truth is, when you come out of one language to another, uh, you lose something in translation almost all the time. And not only that, for the translator, there's many, many options, many choices you can make when you're trying to render from one language to another. The one example that I always remember from when I was young, when this idea was being told me, was that in one Latin-based language, you could only say, I bore myself. But in English, we say, I'm bored. And you can see the difference there. In English, it's like, has nothing to do with me. I'm just living my life, and somehow I'm bored. Not my responsibility. But in the other language, they're literally saying, I bore myself, taking full responsibility for the fact that they're bored. But that's the only example I can really offer here as an English speaker. It is thus that the ground plan of a Christian building reveals to us the qualities of the first matter and its preparation by the sign of the cross, which points the way for the alchemist to obtain the first stone, the cornerstone of the philosopher's great work. It is on this stone that Jesus built his church, and the medieval Freemasons have symbolically followed the divine example. But before being dressed to serve as a base for the work of Gothic art, as well as for the philosophical work of art, the rough, impure, gross, and unpolished stone was often given the image of the devil. This is an interesting idea. People can go look up the cornerstone or the first stone. Um, and Jason, didn't we also see in, in some of the research we did here, it's referred to as the stone that was thrown away. And quite often, this cornerstone is being described as unfinished, unpolished, rough, and yet it is the beginning marker for it all. And that is a metaphor for everything that follows if you're on the path of a human being trying to become a higher human being. Because at first you're rough, you're coarse, you're gross, and you're going to work to become subtly better and better and better, reaching for that untarnishable gold idea. That's what's going on here. But it's quite an interesting read in Falconelli to hear the full description of the cornerstone. Falconelli makes constant reference to the notion of a stone or the stone. And in my uninitiated way, I take it to mean the essence of the person, how it starts off rough and needs to go through purifications until it is going through the motions of the great work. And a lot of times there is a reference to three stages to this great work. Right. But to me, what really stood out to me is they're going to make these incredible cathedrals. We've never seen anything that even come close in my, from my point of view. Those Gothic cathedrals are the be all and end all for me. That is the highest achievement in human building I've ever seen from the glass that we can't reproduce anymore because we don't have the alchemical art to get the colors they did from nature. But to get back to the stone here, they're going to build this completely incredibly built, well-polished building, yet the first stone is going to be rough. And I think that says all it needs to say. People can understand where that's going. That lays out the first initial kind of blueprint of where that building is going to be facing, how it's going to go. And when every other polished cut and face stone is in place, guess what? That first stone that was not polished, polished and cut is still going to be sitting there. This next 
passage is about the way that churches are supposed to be laid out. That is the invariable orientation intended in such a fashion that the faithful and profane, entering the church by the west, walk straight to the sanctuary facing the direction in which the sun rises, i.e. the Orient, Palestine, cradle of Christianity. They leave the shadows and walk towards the light. So anyone can jump in Google Earth and go look at some of the most famous, largest churches in our world, and invariably you'll find a ton of them that have two towers. Invariable, they will be facing the front of that church, will be facing in the same direction. And Falconelli goes to great length to tell you exactly why the Gothic cathedrals were laid out as they were. But the main point that he makes, or the lowest easy-to-understand point, is whether an initiate or a uninitiated person walks in through that front door, they're walking towards the rising sun. And that's the allegory for leaving the shadow and walking towards the light that Jason just laid down. And of course, this also is how the Freemason Hall would be laid out as well. Right. All of it. It's, it's, and it's from time immemorial. You know, Falconelli says over and over, he references the Middle Ages. He even goes so far as to say that the word Gothic is not really what you think it is. It has a different root meaning. And in Falconelli's view, there is no greater level of architectural adeptness than is held in those cathedrals. And I think I would agree. There are lots of references about God's child being born. Initially, with regards to Juno conceiving, Juno being from the Roman, and moving to the traditional Christian story of the star guiding the wise men to the sun, S-O-N, or the sun, S-U-N. Both, in fact, are referenced. Right, and he goes to great length to talk about the source of the Magi, the idea of the Magi. But as we go through here, oh, I see it's in the next step. We're going to talk about the Black Virgin, because I think that's a critical thing for people to understand. And for me, there's so much held in, in the black virgin idea, but let's just suffice it to say these were Isis, which Jason is about to cover. And look what's become of the word Isis in the modern age. Now it's a make-believe terrorist organization. Hint, hint, hint. Anyhow, go ahead. There are numerous references to Isis and statues that are in the subterranean that would later become the idol of the black virgin. They represent, in hermetic symbolism, the virgin earth, which the artist must choose as the subject of his great work. It is first matter in mineral state as it comes out of the ore-bearing strata deeply buried under the rocky mass. So most people aren't going to have any clue what Jason just laid down. Um, one place you can go on YouTube is a channel called Hoaxbuster, who actually blew the lid off Marie Curie, which gave us the ability to decode the fact that nukes don't exist as described. But on that channel, he shows what goes on a lot of the Masonic principles. And this is the idea of there's a starting point for the alchemist who wants to become a higher human being. To get back to the main point, Falconelli lays down a number of places where there were Isis statues before the edifices we're talking about became modern religious structures or operated by modern religion and they all have to do with isis and this is wholly not what most people are going to think it's literally talking about the natural truths of our world or what we call earth and then that slowly morphed over to the black virgin or the black mary which some people are familiar with as a matter of fact there's a relatively modern book called the secret life of bees that encodes the Black Virgin into that tale being woven. The whole tale 
circling around what bees do hint 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 but i would i would tell anyone go go get mystery of the cathedrals and read it you know front to back because uh, we can't possibly include everything that's in there and of course isis is from the ancient egyptian again same problem try it <laughs> But we see this mixing of the earlier mythological beings and all that with the Christianity that are slowly phased out or transformed into later Christian images. Right. Well, I mean, this is people get insulted when they when they start to learn um, how much of what is called pagan, which I have a problem with. That just means a person who lives in nature. It's what pagan means. But now it's become a derisive term, a way to insult someone, to call them pagan. But almost every holiday or holy day that we have is derived. Look at Christmas. Why are you putting a Christmas tree up with little balls on it? Um, what's Easter about? That's the first month after the spring equinox. These can throw back all the way to these times we're referencing. And what was held in the natural science was so important, it was incorporated into the emerging religions, which slowly took over everything. It is a curious hermetic analogy that Sibyl was worshipped at Pesinante in Phrygia in the form of a black stone, which was said to have fallen from heaven. Phidias represents the goddess seated on a throne between two lions, having on her head a mural crown from which hangs a veil. Sometimes she is represented holding a key and seeming to draw back her veil. Isis, Ceres, and Sibel are three heads under the same veil. If the lion is a representation of the sun, two lions could possibly be representing the two suns. Indeed, and again, um, if you go back as far as you can, and we don't even know what that time would be, you know, talking about Egypt and Isis, whenever that mythical, magical place was, because our history isn't accurate, but it's always the triune idea. And even here, in, in this usage, we're talking about Isis, Ceres, and Sybil. There's another triune idea, but basically what they're saying here is Isis is one, but there's three aspects. The other two are Ceres and Sybil. And so, rightly, we can begin to try to make assumptions, knowing that the lion is always representing royalty in the sun, um, that two lions may represent two suns. It's a logical line of reasoning. And, of course, we got into this a bit with the last episode with the big reveal that... Crow has, in fact, filmed Two Sons, and we've gotten a lot of interesting feedback since that episode's release, and apparently a lot of other folks have also done work on this as well. So there's, as Crow would say, there's a there there. There is, but uh, in the case of the double sun, it's going to take more people doing things. Um, doesn't mean a lot when one person has done it, but now everybody knows where to look and what to look for. And by the way, there is quite a bit of unusual footage of the double sun idea online now. And as I mentioned before, during the eclipse, all the people that filmed the sun we see overexposed picked up that mirrored reflection. There's a lot going on up there, but it's going to take more people looking to get much further down the road than we currently are. The majestic Notre Dame of Paris was formerly raised up on a flight of 11 steps, separated only by a narrow space from the wooden houses, from the pointed crow's step gables, it gained in boldness and elegance what it lost in bulk. Today, thanks to clearances, it appears all the more massive for being more isolated and because its porches, pillars, and buttresses rest directly on the ground. A gradual raising of the ground level all around has meant 
that the cathedral steps have been swallowed up one by one until none remains. All right, I imagine a lot of people are going to come in with the mud flood idea, and I'll just put it on the record. I don't accept the mud flood. I think there's a lot of good ideas, and I think people are finding evidence of something that's important. Um, but here again, we have accounts that the, uh, the steps went away one by one, not all at once. And not only that, there's plenty of buildings that are sufficiently old around um, where, where there's problems with the other idea. But what would you add here, Jason? Yeah, the mud flood thing... It's very interesting. I'm just going to say what I've said before. I don't see enough evidence for it. Again, if it's supposed to be a worldwide calamity, I would really have thought that I would see something in the French Quarter to clue me off to it. And I looked. It's not that I want to poo-poo this idea heavily. I find the concept very interesting. I find all of this sort of thing very interesting. But I couldn't find anything. So you can't jump to conclusions like with any of these things. You cannot jump to conclusions. So keep that in mind when you're looking at any of this evidence. Right. And I've mostly, you know, so many people have pinged me. I've mostly steered clear from it. A lot of people are looking at very interesting evidences, but I just don't accept that there was a worldwide mud flood. Now, there's apparently something called mud fossils that a lot of folks are looking at that's a different concept from the mud flood. And we'll have to take a look at that as a separate idea that I wasn't previously aware of. Yeah, a lot of people have pinged me. The problem is, is there's just not enough time in, in a day quite often for us. Um, I am aware that people are talking about that. I don't know much about it. Maybe at some point we'll get a chance to take it apart carefully. On the ordering of statues of St. Christopher to be destroyed from the cathedrals in the 1700s. Christopher stands for Christopher, he who carries gold. From this, one can better understand the extreme importance of the symbol of St. Christopher. It is the hieroglyph of the solar sulfur, or Jesus, of the nascent gold raised on the mercurial waters and then carried by the proper energy of this mercury to the degree of power possessed by the elixir. According to Aristotle, the emblematic color of mercury is gray or violet, which explains sufficiently why the statues of St. Christopher were given a coating of that color. So this is an important idea for me because what Falconelli points out here is that when you walked into many of these places, the first thing you saw back in the day, um, I guess the 1700s supposedly being that day, uh, there was a a gray statue of St. Christopher, and those were removed. And that's not the only thing that was removed. Um, He even points out the people who fought against the removal of these emblematic, symbolic things that were put in there, which had meaning. And yet people came along later and they removed all the St. Christophers and they did other things that, from Falconelli's point of view, are now lost forever to science. That's how he puts it. In other words, even if somehow people knew exactly what was removed, uh, the meaning that had been put into it would likely be lost. Um, I'm not sure what to make of it all, but whenever you see people make an incredible thing and put statues and encode the natural world into them, and then someone comes along later and removes them, what do you think's going on there? They're hiding things. They're hiding truths. My take on this is there must have been something encoded in these statues repeatedly through the many cathedrals because it came from the top down. It came from the Vatican 
in the 1700s to have these things removed. So what indeed did these statues have encoded in them that they wouldn't want future generations to be able to decode? Right. Um, and he points out over and over that uh, Christopher was awful shown carrying the baby Jesus. He's done the alchemical tie-over to the solar sulfur, the nascent gold. Um, a lot being included there. He even points out one bishop or an archbishop who said, no, you guys are not removing this stuff. So what they did is they waited for him to die. And like a week after he died, they went in. And the way Falconelli talks about it is not did they just remove the statue, they broke it up. They destroyed it. So there's all that. And this is a similar thing we see happening over and over again as the Vatican gained complete and total control over predominantly the Western world. You see them cutting away more and more of the past and slimming it down, much like Newspeak in 1984, so that the only thing you have is the representation that they want you to have and nothing more. Well, I would ask, you know, why do the richest people in the world collect ancient art? Well, this is why, because it wasn't about the artist who made it. It was about the importance of the ideas that were being contained and held within that art. And we just had a conversation with someone who was it was it Giancarlo who pointed out as soon as we went into Iraq, the first thing they did is went and destroyed the museum. Yes. And all the antiquities there. It's the same thing going on. But this is this is what we're talking about in history being allied upon right now. If I had to with the little that I've been able to learn here, put a timeline down. I would mark the Renaissance as the beginning of the hyper-material age we now find ourselves in. Whatever came before that, um, it wasn't the artist like Michelangelo that was going to be the rock star. The rock star was the idea that was put in the art. So every time you hear a story about supposed Nazis going around stealing all the, the art of antiquities, what's going on there? There was a point in our world when buildings like cathedrals and the artwork that went in them held the most important ideas that human beings could possibly think about. And we've lost all that. Well, temporarily, we've lost all that. The next passage is in reference to what is called the Renaissance period, which the mainstream considers to be about 1300 until about 1600. Carried along by the great tide of decadence, which, under Francis I, took the paradoxical name of the Renaissance. The artists of the time were incapable of making an effort equal to that of their ancestors. Being entirely ignorant of medieval symbolism, they applied themselves to reproducing bastard works without taste, without character, without esoteric thought, rather than to pursuing and developing admirable and healthy French originality. I agree with this all day long. I agree with it all day long. And there's certain things that people can do, like like what's what's some famous supposed ancient art? Oh, the, the three fates. Go look up the three fates. And maybe I should have done this before I sat down because I don't know how many search returns are going to be. But there's this very old art that is preceding the Renaissance, which is what Falconelli is calling just a time of rock stars and copycats. They had all this skill, but they had none of the higher-mindedness and the symbolism of our natural world and the path of a human being to, to higher reaches. All that was lost. 
Um, he even goes on to say that in those original artworks that get copied all the time, it's almost like the marble was alive. Um, and that gets attributed to the Renaissance, but I don't agree with that. But the Three Fates is a good example. So supposedly the, the Romans had the Three Fates, but every time you see them, it's identical. The postures, the three women that are representing it, the whole idea of it is being replicated from an older time over and over and over. And by the time we get up into more modern reaches that we can know something about, um, the only thing that ever really changes is someone might put their wife or their girlfriend's face on one of the three fates. But the the mannerisms, the way they're standing, all that is a fixed idea. And what Falconelli is claiming here is they're copying a thing that they don't even wholly understand anymore. The pier, which divides the entrance bay, shows a series of allegorical representations of the medieval sciences. In the place of honor, facing the parvis, Alchemy is represented by a woman, with her head touching the clouds. Seated on a throne, she holds in her left hand a scepter, the sign of royal power, while her right hand supports two books, one closed, which is esotericism, and the other open, exotericism. Supported between her knees and leaning against her chest is the ladder with nine rungs, Scala Philosophorum, hieroglyph of the patience which the faithful must possess in the course of the nine successive operations of the hermetic labor. What more do we need to say here? You get an inkling of what's encoded in every single thing that remains in the cathedrals that was not destroyed at some point by people who wanted to cover up these important ideas. Um, that is one tiny little piece of what goes on in these cathedrals, and that's probably a minuscule representation of what it actually means. Now, we're speaking of Notre Dame in this particular instance and everything up to this point, but there are so many references that were made that we can't possibly go through that are all about alchemy. It, it literally is the building is about the alchemical works or the great work. It's even explained if you know how to read the symbols. But that's another thing, you know, when we hear the great work today, we think about people doing things secretly that they shouldn't be doing. And that's not the time we're referring here to. We're talking about a higher minded society that put these things together, who were in touch with the natural world, who many of the people in there could walk into these edifices and understand what's encoded there, or they were on the path to understanding. Um, and not only that, everybody was welcome again and again in these accounts, the initiated and the uninitiated were all welcome to come do their thing. Um, we've come a long way from this point, and I don't think there's going to be likely a cathedral out there that doesn't share the very fact that alchemical or natural science ideas were the basis for the creation of that edifice. And again, in the Falconelli work, Mystery of the Cathedrals, he cites so many other examples, but concentrates on Notre Dame to make his points. Right. And of course, later in the book, they go through several of the other cathedrals. And at the very end, we have the Great Cross of Hende, and all of them have hermetic works inscribed into them. Yeah, it, it shows the importance of a thing that's now been kind of new agey. It's like astrology, you know, it's like a silly word now. And that's unfortunate. These things were so damn important that the greatest buildings that I'm aware of in this world were built to encode those ideas. And that should tell everybody something critically important. So we've been going through all of these images, 
the artwork, all of this that are in these cathedrals, a lot of which is still there today, although some of it has definitely been mm, whittled away through time, whether intentional or otherwise. But a lot of it is still there for those, as they like to say, with eyes to see. And I, for one, am going to reread this book probably multiple times to really try and get a grasp at what was being presented here. Does that make me an initiate of the alchemical studies? I don't know. I find it interesting, and I would really like to understand a lot more. The one thing I definitely noticed, if you do get this book, are that a lot of words are italicized, that you're really not sure why they would be. And I think there's a deeper meaning there that I would really like to look into further. Did you catch on that, Crow? Yeah, absolutely. Whenever you're reading through a text and all of a sudden there's an italicized word, it's saying, look at me, look at me. You know, there's something going on here. Pay attention. And for my part, I wish I could read this text in French. It, I mean, I know I'm missing so much, but Jason, we're going to do a breakdown an hour or two of the positions of the buildings, the idea of how each one of these is absolutely aligned to the sky clock, even the windows. Falconelli goes over three sets of windows. Like in Notre Dame, everyone's familiar with the the uh, west-facing big rose window, um, and that was the most important because the setting sun was going to come through that window. But each of those windows and the colors in the windows and everything to do with these windows is situated for a certain time for the sun to come through with all this meaning attached, from the colors to the shapes to the everything, everything, everything. And it's incredible to think what abilities we used to have when you look at how we live now. We all live in the angles of sorrow now. We live in cubes, boxes, and rectangles, 90-degree angles everywhere, which from the hermetic standpoint was the angles of sorrow. As we've covered so often, a perfect triangle would be considered the angles of joy. But look how far we've come down. <laughs> it's, it's incredible, Jason. It's night and day differences from today from whenever this actually happened, because, of course, there are some very big questions about when these things would have actually taken place. But there's really no doubt that things are very, very different. And all you have to do is look at everyone staring head down into their phone these days to know that the open-mindedness, the higher-mindedness of yesterday is a very scarce thing in the 21st century. By design, and it's held in a lot of movies, you know, we've covered the, what's that that modern version of the H.G. Wells film with Malcolm McDowell? What's the name of that movie? Oh, you're referring to The Time Machine from about 1979. Right, The Time Machine from 1979. Um, this guy, in a retelling of the H.G. Wells Time Machine story, leaves the 1800s convinced he's going to go up to the 1970s and find utopia. And what he actually finds is the exact opposite. They've gone downhill ever since the 1800s. When he goes into his den, all the furniture is beautifully crafted. There's a big library there with all these high-minded texts. And he gets to, to the 1970s, and it's all gone. And not only that, he asks a person, where's your books? And the person informs him, we don't read books anymore. We pretty much just watch movies. And they're making fun of what's happened. So I'll ask, if the Renaissance is some supposed time of enlightenment, which I do not accept for a second, how in the hell do you go from enlightened to where we are now in 400 years? How does that happen? Uh, by design, I would add. But you want to add anything else before we wrap up the first hour and get back uh, and come back for hour two? Another interesting point folks like to laugh at, but... 
look at it this way in the movie The Time Machine. David Warner, who is an excellent, excellent actor, plays the character Jack the Ripper, the bad guy that H.G. Wells chases through time to what was current 1979 at the time. Disco was the big thing at the time, and David Warner's character of Jack the Ripper is seen later in the movie getting into 20th century costuming. He's seen wearing a John Travolta polyester suit, which just seems laughable. But when you think about it, it's showing the stark contrast that H.G. Wells is still wearing his traditional clothing from the late 1800s. And David Warner's character is putting on the synthetic fabrics of the 20th century. Well, at one point during the movie, the main character just wants to get back to his time um, where things are higher minded and everything is has quality, all the things he's used to. But the, the supposed Jack the Ripper character, which, by the way, is made up nonsense, Jack the Ripper. But the guy playing Jack the Ripper states outright, what are you talking about, man? I don't want to go back. This is my time. Look at all the materialism and the death. You know, this guy's a, a, a serial killer. And he's found his perfect spot here in the modern United States. It's all poking fun at the fall that we've taken. Before I close down, I should let people know on the Crow777radio.com, we've actually put up a link called Shop to get the t-shirts. The main aim there is that all the t-shirts have the web address. And since we're being scrubbed from search engines and search returns, we're opting to offer things like shirts so that every person who wears one of those shirts walks through the world with the web address. There's no way to censor that. Anything else I'm forgetting, Jason? I wanted to say thank you once again. There are donations still coming up for the GoFundMe, which we are leaving up because we're getting requests, especially through the social media, to come to more and more places, some of which are not very close to the United States. There have actually been multiple people asking about going to Australia and also the United Kingdom, which I have no problem with. I would love to go over there. So we're going to leave the GoFundMe up and whatever folks are still giving, it's going to go to that. If we have enough and can afford to go do these things, as long as we're breaking even, we will keep taking the film wherever we can afford to go. So we're going to leave it up. Thank you to all those who are still donating, and we'll see what happens. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with this film, Jason. If I had never seen it and had nothing to do with it, it would be interesting to me. So I'm going to be all eyes and ears to see where it's allowed to run and what the result of running that film is. But anyhow, Jason, that does bring hour one of episode 151 to a close. We have a ton to cover in the second hour. And you guys may hear we're a little bit tired. This has been a hell of a week for us. And with the movie almost here and all the interviews we've had to do, we're a bit beat up from the street up. But anyhow, we hope to see you all over at Crow 777 Radio, where free speech rules for hour two. There it is, man. Cheers.